Well, good morning. Well, last week, my son and I were in uh, Wisconsin, and on our way to Green Bay, we visited Madison, where my mom and dad spent the first eight years of their marriage. So we passed by Madison East, where my Uncle Charles did his sophomore year of high school. We had a brat at State Street Brats, their favorite restaurant. We drove around the Capitol where my mom worked. We visited the stadium where my dad boxed and the engineering building where he studied. We saw the three homes where they lived. And Madison's a delightful city. But what made it meaningful was, this is where it all began for my mom and dad. And therefore, that's where it began for me. So my roots go back to that place. And we were there at the beginning. Uh, I felt something similar when I was in Germany and had the opportunity to be in Wittenberg where Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, on the basis of Jesus Christ alone. And I actually stood at the place in Worms where he said, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, amen. And so it was a wonderful privilege to be able to go back to the beginning, to the headwaters of where our gospel tradition started as Protestants. Go back to the source, to the springs. Well, the Gospel of Mark, which we begin today, begins at the beginning by going back to the headwaters of the Gospel with the coming of John the Baptist as the herald of Jesus Christ and the declaration of the Father and the sending forth by the Spirit, which is where we're going to be beginning our text today. So the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 1 function as a prologue and they're broken up into three main parts. The herald who prepared Christ's way. The Father, who declared Jesus to be His Son. And the Holy Spirit, who directed Jesus into the wilderness in preparation for His ministry. So would you join with me in prayer as we open up the Gospel of Mark. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, who is Your Son, who did come, who was anointed by the Spirit and then directed and empowered by Him to live a sinless life, to die a substitutionary death, to rise bodily from the grave, to ascend to Your right hand where He reigns until His return. So Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study the life of our Lord. We pray that as we go through these pages, these months, that You would open our mind to understand what Your Spirit has revealed, that You would open our heart to receive it, that we would fall more in love with you and our Savior as a result and be better equipped to serve you. And we'll ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the very outset, <clears throat> Mark states his theme and his subject. If you were to unroll the scroll, or actually by this time open up the codex, the book, and read the opening line, what is this book about? Well, this is about the gospel. And the gospel is about Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, and He was the Son of God. So He's going to give us the interpretive key right from the outset. One of the themes running through the Gospel of Mark is what's called the Messianic secret of who is this man? Who is this one who would teach and cast out demons with such authority? Who is this person who would still the waves and control the wind? Who is the one who would claim the power to forgive sins and address God directly as his father? Who is the one who could heal the lame and the blind and the deaf, raise the dead? Who is this person? And from the very beginning, Mark lets us know, well, this is Jesus. 
This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. And now we have the interpretive key so that as we're going through the rest of this book, we know what none of the other people at the time knew of who this man is and why he had come and what that means for us today. Now, my wife was asking me this morning, so exactly what is the gospel? Because surely Mark wasn't talking about his book, although he is the first gospel writer. He invented a genre when, at Peter's instruction, he wrote down the life of our Lord. Well, the word gospel means good news. And initially, it meant a reward that a messenger would receive for bringing good news. So you would come and give an announcement of a victory, and they would give you a tip, and that would be your gospel. And then it came to be used of good news itself in general, uh, usually of a military victory. So at the Battle of Marathon, when the Greeks defeated the invading Persians, the army sent out evangelists to proclaim the good news that the invaders had been defeated and the country was safe. Interestingly, when you look at the classical world, this term was used with the birth of the first Caesar, Augustus Caesar. Here's a proclamation that was given by the proconsul to the cities in modern-day Turkey. Whereas providence has brought our life to the peak of perfection in giving us Augustus Caesar, whom it filled with virtue for the welfare of mankind, and who being sent to us and to our descendants as a savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become visible, Caesar has fulfilled the hopes of all earlier times. And whereas finally the birthday of the God, that is what they called Augustus Caesar, has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. Therefore, let all reckon a new era beginning from the date of his birth and let his birthday mark the beginning of the new era. New era. <clears throat> And so you can imagine the Christians growing up in this classical context to say, wait a minute, it's not Caesar who's Savior, it's Jesus Christ. And we are going to begin a calendar at his birth, and that's why our coins still have on them A.D. and B.C., in the year of our Lord and the before Christ. And it's not him that's the consummation of divine perfections, but Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh. And he didn't just come and establish peace, what's called the Pax Romana, a military peace, but rather peace on earth between God and men with whom he is well pleased. So on every level, what the classical world associated with Caesar, the Christians understood, wait a minute, that really isn't that great a news if it's just another politician come to office, if it's just a new government that's been put in place, if it's just an installation of another economy, that's not that great a news as we know but the Christians have the good news of the Savior and the true God who does establish peace on earth. And we are going to build our calendar and our society around it. But the specific backdrop that we should interpret the word gospel from is the Old Testament. Because God often announced the good news of His returning to redeem, deliver, heal, and restore His people. So for example, in Isaiah chapter 40, he says, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. God had come back to his people. And what is the nature of that good news? Behold, the Lord God will come with might and with his arm ruling for him. 
Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He's going to reward those who are righteous and follow him and identify themselves with him. He's going to recompense the unjust and the wicked for all the wrongs that they did. God is going to come and set things right finally. But he's not simply going to come as a mighty warrior and as a judge, but as a tender shepherd. It says in the next verse, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. And in his arm, he will carry the lambs. And he'll carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead the nursing ewes. That this one that is coming to recompense and to reward and to establish peace and to conquer all the injustice and the evil of the world is also one who is tender to care for the weak and the downtrodden. Isaiah goes on to say, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. And again, not just the absence of conflict, but shalom. That all is right with the world because all is functioning as God intended it. And brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Because we're not going to fix this fallen planet by getting certain politicians in office. Or certain judges in court. Or making certain political, legal, and economic improvements. Fixing the education system isn't going to fix our society. At the end of the day, our hope is on the return of God Himself to set things right as only the Almighty God can do, who has all the knowledge and all the wisdom and all the justice and righteousness to always do the right thing. And it was merciful and compassionate to let that trickle down to the lowest of the low and the humble and the uneducated and the downtrodden and the one who can't be bribed and the one who isn't self-seeking and the one who has no personal, sinful self-interest, but merely rules to bless his people. That's what Israel was expecting. That's what they were waiting on. That was the hope of the Jews, and that was the good news that they were anticipating. So when Mark says the beginning of the good news, he means that God is finally coming back. That God is finally going to return to his people, and he's going to set things right. Um, I had breakfast with a friend that I hadn't seen in a while this Tuesday. And as we were catching up, <laughs> he was sharing struggles in his family and I shared mine. He was struggling, uh, these economic legal pressures going on in his family and I could share mine. We both complained about what's going on in our country <laughs> and dreading what the election year is going to hold. We both had medical issues. We both had, and after a while I said, how do we not get discouraged by the amount of discouraging bad news in this world. And he said, well, we just have to keep going and wait for Jesus to come and set things right. And he was right, that we just have to keep pushing on, and our hope is that one day Christ is going to return and set all things right. And then there's no longer going to be any crying or mourning or death or pain. There's not going to be any wickedness and injustice and bigotry and hate. All those former things are going to be set aside. And what is our hope was their hope. So as we read this opening prologue and as we go into the gospel, it has to be with, Lord, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? And Mark says, it's now. It's now. And the way you're going to know it is the return of God is going to be preceded by the sending of a messenger, by the coming of a herald who will prepare his people's way. Look at Mark in the following verses. 
As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you, quoting Exodus 23, about the messenger who led Israel in the wilderness, who will prepare your way, which is from Malachi, about God preparing to bring people back into a new exodus into the land. And then Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So if you're an early riser and you're wondering when dawn is going to finally come, you look for Venus because that's the morning star. And when Venus is bright, you know that soon the sun will come. Uh, if you're gardeners and you see the tulips and the dandelions or the daffodils beginning to bloom, in my yarn, it's uh, dandelions. <laughs> I grow weeds wonderfully well. But you know that spring is coming. Uh, for those that are diehard football fans, when you see the two-a-days hit, you know the long, dry season is over and another football season has come, and I see some emphatic nods. And these are harbingers, these are heralds, these are forerunners of what we've been anticipating. And God said, I'm going to herald my coming by sending a herald, a messenger, to prepare my people. And that's what John the Baptist was. Look at verses 4 and following. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locust and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now there's ten observations that we want to make in this description of John as the herald of the Messiah. And the first of all is his name. John means God is gracious. And that's not accidental because you'll remember from the Gospel of Luke that John was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And this faithful priestly couple that were barren, but yet in Zechariah in the temple, the angel, angel befeared beside him and said, your prayers are answered. You're going to have a son and you will give him the name John. And so every time we think of John the Baptist in connection with the gospel, we think of the graciousness of God. Because a holy God had every right to judge his sinful nation who every time he was faithful, they remained faithless and who gave them chance after chance after chance, and they blew it, blew it, blew it, just like we do. But every time we think of the gospel and associate it with John, we're reminded we serve a gracious God who doesn't treat us as we deserve, whose love is not conditional on our character, but on His, and who extends unconditional, undeserved mercy and compassion because that's who our God is. So the John, the herald, reminds us, even in His name, of the graciousness of our God. His title, the Baptist, does not uh, denominate his denomination. Uh, the Baptists do not go back that far, but to the uh, 17th century. But he was the baptizer, is what the word literally means. So he does something unique in religious history. John is the first one to have adult immersion as a sign of repentance and identification with God. It's not just a cleansing ritual like the Jews had. It's not just like a cleansing ritual that the Dead Sea community at Qumran had. It's a unique act in religious history because this was a unique time in religious history that he was going to be the one 
who would implement the ordinance of baptism, of an individual coming individually before God and saying, I'm a sinner. And God saying, if you will die in that sin, I will enable you to rise to walk in newness of life. And so John the baptizer came instituting this new way of rededicating yourself to God because it wasn't enough to be a Jew. It wasn't enough to be a child of Abraham. It wasn't enough to attend temple. One of the unique things about John indicates is your current status as the people of God is insufficient to get you right with God. You need to identify yourself not simply with Abram, but with Abram's chosen seed. You need to identify yourself not simply with Jacob, who was renamed Israel, but with the one who was going to be a descendant of Jacob, who was going to reign and to rule. You can't be born into the family of God. You must be born again. And that occurs as each individual comes before God. His venue was the wilderness, which is significant because you would expect God to send His Messiah and the forerunner to the temple, right? I mean, there is the grandest temple of God on earth there in Jerusalem. There are sacrifices. There's a priesthood. There's all the celebrations. There is a way and a place that you would expect God to come, but He doesn't because the temple had become corrupt. Because the Jewish leaders had become pharisaical. Because the Sadducees had become political. Because the sacrifices had become ritual because the law had been ignored, because the people had been oppressed, and now God is making a statement of, if you want to get right with me, you can't just simply go to where the temple is because I'm going to be removing it soon. And I'm going to establish a new temple and a new priest in my son and a new final sacrifice in the person of Jesus Christ. Don't go to Jerusalem. <laughs> you have to go to the Jordan. you got to go to the wilderness. And his ministry was preaching a baptism to symbolize the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, isn't it glorious that it's possible to have our sins forgiven? That we have the opportunity, as much as we muck up our life, to let God make our sins as scarlet, white as snow? But a Jew would have associated that with, well, I know how to forgive my sins. I go to the temple and I offer sacrifice. But not anymore, not with the person of Jesus. Instead, you need to repent. You need to acknowledge that God is holy and we are not. And that we are not perfect as He is. And that we need to confess that and acknowledge that. And it's not the fault of my biology and my genetics. It's not the fault of my cultural and society. I'm not a victim of everything that I've suffered. I have chosen to willfully rebel against God. I knew how I wanted others to treat me and I didn't treat them that way. I knew how I didn't want other people to treat me, and I treated them that way. I didn't want to be deceived, but I've deceived. I don't appreciate pride, but I'm proud. And so in all these ways, we fall short of the perfect holiness of God. And we have to admit that and acknowledge that and say, God, I want to get right with you. I'm ready to follow and obey you. And this is the way that John prepared the way. So probably all of us have had guests in our home and so what do you do? You say to the kids, got to get your bedroom clean. Got to vacuum the floor. Got to mop the floor. Got to get everything clean because guests are coming and we got to get ready. If the president were to come to our community, 
The streets would never be cleaner. We'd finally have the road repairs done on schedule. Everything would be spit and shiny because a dignitary's coming and we get ready. But when God himself says, I'm coming and you need to get ready, what does that look like? It's not polish up the temple stones. It's not uh, remove the money changers from the temple temporarily. It's not launder your best garments. The way we prepare for the coming of God is our heart. That we acknowledge that we're not righteous the way He is, but we want to be. And we confess our sins and come to Him. And this was the message He was preaching. And look at the response it had. All the country of Judea was going out to Him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by Him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, we don't know exactly where John was baptizing in the Jordan River. So the Jordan runs between the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. We don't know the specific spot, but it would have been at least 20 miles. And as you know from the parable of the Good Samaritan, the road down that way was dangerous and it was difficult. You risk the suspicion and the displeasure of the priests because now you're going out to listen to a prophet rather than coming to them. Maybe you've got to take a day off work. It's humbling to confess your sins publicly to identify yourself with this wild-haired, locust-eating prophet. And yet they did it in great numbers. Because his identity, as indicated by his clothing, was he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locust and wild honey. In other words, this is the garment of a prophet. So even as prophets, or even as Protestants, when we see a movie and a figure comes in dressed all in black with a white collar, we know that person is a priest. His garment gives away his role. Well, in the Old Testament, this is the garment of Elijah, whom John was seen as a successor of. And so you know that you're coming to a new prophet, and John is the first prophet in four centuries. Since Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, God was not speaking directly to his people anymore because their sin and wickedness had grown so great. And now, after four centuries of silence, by the way, that's going back to 1619, which is right on the eve of the pilgrims coming to Plymouth Rock, they had not heard a spokesman from God in 400 years until John comes. And that's significant, and that's meaningful, and that's worth going to the river to see. And part of his message is not simply about them and God, but about the Messiah whom he had come to herald. He says, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. John's message was about Christ. Uh, there's an interesting episode in John, in the book, Gospel of John, chapter 3, where John's disciples are complaining, saying, everybody's going now to be baptized by Jesus' apostles and not by you. And you remember John's beautiful words? He must increase, but I must decrease. It was never about me. Now, Jesus said that among those born of women, no one is greater than John because of the role he played as the herald of the Messiah. But by comparison, John says, I'm not even worthy to remove his sandal, which was a job so humble that a Jewish slave could decline it. I'll clean the washrooms, but you can't make me take off a person's sandal. But John says, I'm lower than that compared to my younger relative, this Jesus of Nazareth. And why was Jesus so great? 
His message also was that I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus is the one who would establish the new covenant. And part of that new covenant blessing is the giving of the Holy Spirit. Here's how Ezekiel reveals it in chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. So this old covenant of the law of Moses that we couldn't obey. The law was perfect and pure, but we were sinful and selfish and we wouldn't obey it. And the only solution was for God to establish a new covenant. And look what God does. I will sprinkle you clean. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your hard heart. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. And he will cause you to walk in my statutes and obey my law finally. And who is going to establish this new covenant? The Messiah. Jesus. He is the fulfillment of everything that people had been anticipating through all of the centuries of waiting. So what is John's significance? He's the first prophet in over four centuries. God, after a long silence, is speaking and declaring and proclaiming. He is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist because of his role as the herald of the Messiah the last of the Old Testament prophets, transitioning to the final prophet, who is Jesus Christ. Now Jesus enters the scene in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, no one expected the Messiah to come out of Galilee. That was in the north. That was where the Roman army had their base. You would have expected them to be a Judean. And of course, he was. He was born in Bethlehem. Nazareth is nowhere quoted in the Old Testament or the Talmud. It is this small village. Uh, archaeologists estimate that at the time of Christ, it may have had between 200 and 400 people. To put that in perspective, Frank Borman Elementary has 470 students. No one would have thought Messiah would have come out of Borman? Really? But that's the humble people that he associated himself with. And he came and was baptized by John in the Jordan, not because he was a sinner, but because he identified himself with sinners and because he identified himself with John's ministry. And immediately as he came out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, literally rent open. It's the word used of the tearing apart of the veil in the temple when the crucifixion occurred. And the spirit, like a dove descending upon him, um, the Messiah was associated with the Holy Spirit. You would know the coming of the Christ, the anointed one, the deliverer that God was going to send because the Holy Spirit would come upon him. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus preaches his first message in a synagogue, this is his text. I am that person. 
I am the one that God has given the Spirit to direct and empower me to proclaim good news to the afflicted. To bind up or to, to, to help, to put a brace on the brokenhearted. To pronounce liberty, to liberate prisoners, to proclaim the year of God's favor because He had sent His Son to establish peace. The Spirit coming like a dove parallels the Spirit hovering like a dove in Genesis chapter 1 where the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. The imagery is similar because the same Trinity that is involved in creation is also involved in redemption. We have the Son, we have the Father, we have the Spirit. And the voice comes out declaring, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now we're coming into a political season where everybody is looking for endorsements and God gives Jesus a divine endorsement. You want to know who this humble one is coming from Nazareth of Galilee? I'm going to rend the heavens apart to declare to you firsthand, this is my son. And he is not a sinner needing repentance. I am well pleased in him. Now, if you were a Jew at the time, this would have reminded you of two passages. Psalm 2 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. You will break God's enemies with a rod of island and shatter them like earthenware. The Messiah was going to come and vanquish evildoers and establish peace. And then Isaiah tells us, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. Why? Because he will bring forth justice to the nations. And he won't have to cry out or raise his voice or make his voice heard in the streets. He's going to come so gently and humbly that a bruised reed is not going to be broken by his passing. He's not going to come batter down the bruised and the broken. And a dimly burning wick, the end of a candle, that the flame is flickering feebly, he'll be so gentle that he won't extinguish it. But by his faithfulness, he will bring forth justice, which is all what we all want. He'll say again at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Who is this Jesus? He is the Messiah. And he is also the son of God. God's appointed ruler, God's appointed pacifier and the bringer of justice, and the one that is in a unique relationship with God is the only sinless person who is indeed God in the flesh. And then the Spirit directs Jesus into the wilderness for our third movement in this section. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. The Spirit is going to be directing Jesus' ministry and empowering Jesus' ministry. Now, we're told to flee temptation. We're told to pray daily, do not lead me into temptation. But the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness to confront the tempter face to face and to stand off against the accuser, the adversary, which is what Satan means, which is what the devil means, directly in his own domain. Because while he's there 40 days, he was being tempted by Satan with the wild beast and the angels were ministering to him. The wilderness is associated oftentimes with where the wild things are and where the demons would demonize people. 
and where Satan was. 40 days reminds us of the 40 days of rain, the 40 days of Moses on the mountain, the 40 days of Elijah wandering to Mount Horeb, the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. It's the significant number. And while he was there, he was being tempted by Satan, which, again, at the opening prologue of the gospel, as he's going to count all of these physical events, all these earthly events, this teaching in the synagogue, the healing of the sick, there's another dimension in play. There's spiritual implications to everything that Jesus is doing. That Satan, the fallen angel in rebellion against God, is being overthrown. The strong man is being bound so that his plunder, his property can be plundered. The enemy is being vanquished so that God's people can be restored. And right at the outset, we realize all these things that we're going to see happening in these villages and towns, and finally in Jerusalem, is part of a spiritual conflict that's going on between God and the forces of evil. And the wild beasts would have been especially significant to the Roman Christians that Mark is writing to, because around that time, Nero is putting them in the Colosseum to be martyred by the wild beasts. And they will soon see their brothers and sisters subjected to bears and to boars and to lions. But God is able to protect and preserve, and He did so a son. And the ravens ministered to Elijah in the wilderness, but the angels themselves minister to the Son of God when He comes. So in these 13 verses, Mark is preparing us for the rest of the ministry he's going to recount in his gospel. He starts with the herald of the Messiah, that he is indeed the one that God has promised all the way back to Genesis 3.15. He gives us the declaration of the Father, identifying this person as his one and only Son. And then I associates him with the Holy Spirit, the one who directs and empowers his ministry over Satan himself. So what are some lessons that we learn from the prologue about the gospel? Seven things. First of all, that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah and God's beloved Son who came to redeem and restore. It's not that everything in life would be comfortable. It's not that you would always be affluent and healthy. It's not that God is going to make this world right. The good news of the gospel is that God so loves us that He sent His Son to live the perfect life that we can't live, to die on the cross for our sins, so that all who repent and believe in Him will become new creations in Christ. And we will live with Him on the new earth forever and ever. And then we will enjoy health and peace and justice and rest. Secondly, that the good news of the gospel is that God is coming to forgive, deliver, and restore His people just as He promised. That there is eternal life on the other side of this life because of Jesus Christ. Um, my mom had back surgery a couple weeks ago, and right now she's at a senior care facility uh, doing rehab. And senior care facilities, even the best of them, are sad, discouraging places. And you look at these people who oftentimes are not aware of where they are or their bodies are broken down, and they're tended to almost entirely in these last days of their life. And it's a discouraging thing, especially if that's all that life is. But because of Christ, it's not. And that's just the ending of this life that is the transition to the next life, 
when we will be given glorified bodies to live on a renewed earth. And that's our hope. That's our joy in the midst of life's discouragements. Thirdly, the good news of the gospel must be received by repenting of our sins, acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah and God's divine Son, and embracing Him as our Savior and Lord. The good news is offered to everybody. The good news is only good for those who receive it. And each individual must, in his or her own heart, come to a place where they say to God, I am a sinner. And I can't save myself. And I do believe that Jesus is your Messiah, that he is God in the flesh who died for me. And I give my life to him. And in that moment, the offer of good news is received and we become transformed and it becomes ours for life and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. The good news of the gospel is the work of the Trinity. The Father sending the Son, declaring the Son, being satisfied by the Son's substitution. The Son being willing to come and be our representative, to be our substitute. The Holy Spirit coming to direct and empower Him and then to come and to reside in us to make us more like Christ. The good news of the gospel is opposed by Satan. But Jesus wins. Do you remember when the sower goes out to sow the seed of the word? And some come out and sow tares among the wheat? Who was it that did that? An enemy has done this. The devil. Do you remember when the seed falls on the path and the birds come and eat it up? Who did the birds represent in the parable of the sower? Satan. So there is a spiritual opposition to Christ and the gospel. But Jesus is greater. Jesus is bigger. And Jesus overcomes on our behalf. Sixthly, the good news of the gospel includes the new covenant through which Jesus baptizes us with his Holy Spirit. The old covenant of the law and the need to obey the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law given at Sinai, that's done. That's passed. And now we are cleansed. And now we are forgiven. And now we are transformed. And now we are given new hearts and new natures. And the Spirit himself dwells within us so that we can obey God and live lives more fully and pleasing to Him. And this connects with our seventh point, that the good news of the gospel includes spiritual transformation so that we might obey God. The gospel doesn't end when you receive it and know that you're going to heaven when you die. The good news of the gospel is also about the transformation that the Spirit does in us to make us like Christ so that we can live holier and better lives now, to be better men and women, better mothers and fathers, better husbands and wives, and we have the hope of being better now. Um, Mel turned 94 yesterday, and I was talking to him on his birthday, and I said, Mel, I've never asked you, when you started Denton Bible Church in 1976, what were your first sermon series? He says, you know, the first thing I taught on was the love one another concepts, all the one another's in the Bible. Encourage one another, love one another, uh, forgive one another, et cetera, et cetera. Because I knew we needed to love one another. And then I preached the Gospel of Mark because I wanted us to serve. And Mark is about being disciples who obey Christ and to go forth and to serve Him by making other disciples. And I thought it was interesting and a wonderful parallel that we've been emphasizing up till now the importance of loving one another. And then coincidentally, providentially, starting in the Gospel of Mark, just as Papa Mel taught us, 
that this is something that we do, something we live, something that changes us now and not just something that gives us hope for later. This is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, who is the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you again that when we sinned against you, you did not abandon us. That it would have been simple to simply judge us, to return to enjoying the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit, to create a new universe that would have been more pure, more holy. And yet you set out on a plan of redemption that would cost you your son that you knew we could not save ourselves, and so you sent Jesus to live a perfect life as our representative. And you knew we couldn't do anything to atone for our sins, so he died as our substitute, so that our penalty would be paid by him. And Lord, you sent the herald to let everyone know it's not Joseph Smith, it's not Miller, it's not David Koresh, it's not any other figure it is none other than Jesus of Nazareth because your forerunner came as his herald because you declared him as your son because he is the one that received the Spirit and the one who gives the Spirit. Father, as we celebrate communion, would we remember the beginning of the gospel, the end of the gospel, and what it means for us now and later. And we'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.